Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, December 8, 2016. Today, we are reading from the big book, and we are in forward to second edition, the first full paragraph on page Roman numeral XVIII. That begins in the spring of 1940. Today's readers are Esther F., Rebecca B., Nancy S., Nancy, uh, I'm sorry, Lynn S., Nancy R., and Evini M. Our newcomer greeter is Zinga P. The reference number for Wednesday, December 7, 2016 is 9333. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous, is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Esther F. to read the 12 steps. Good morning, everyone. It's Esther F., a a recovered compulsive overeater from Cleveland. The 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 
and 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you, Esther F. I will now ask Rebecca B. to read the 12 Traditions. Hi, this is Rebecca B. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater in Boston. The 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Number one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. And twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all of these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thanks so much for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you, Rebecca B. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive, overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book in forward to second edition, the first full paragraph on page Roman numeral XVIII. That begins with in the spring of 1940 and ends with a national institution. I will ask Lynn S. to begin reading. Good morning. This is, excuse me, Lynn S., a recovering compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. In the spring of 1940, 
John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends, to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got on the world wires. Inquiries poured in again, and many people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us. By the close of 1941, AA numbered 8,000 members. The mushrooming process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Um, this, this paragraph holds two of the most important events in the beginning of AA, and my knowledge of them isn't as great as some others, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to have other members tell in better than I can what happened, but what I do know about the John D. Rockefeller Jr. dinner was that I believe Bill was there and he had hoped to go and get money. That was the whole point of going, is they wanted to get money so that they could um, develop AA. And Rockefeller was smart enough to know that if he'd done that, it would have ruined uh, what they were doing. And he didn't give it to them. I remember that. And I know with the Jack D. Alexander article, um, that's what really propelled AA. And, and this article, I've seen the article actually in Akron. It was amazing. It was in Dr. Bob's house, and they had it behind a glass case. But it, it's just amazing how that article reached everybody. And I, what I can talk about, though, is the absolute desperation of alcoholics at that time. And to see this article come out and to see the response that people gave it. And it just reminds me, last night in our face-to-face -face meeting, we were reading about um, people who you know, didn't have a fellowship around them. And they said, but you do have this book, and you have it in your hand and you and the book can recover. And this is what was happening then. People were able to get the book. They had seen the story, and they were starting to recover. And so I see the absolute desperation of all these alcoholics in need and the miracle of this book coming out and an alcoholic with the book in their hand recovering and then hearing about other groups, you know, like people, ones and twos getting together and them able to do that too. It's just a miracle. And with that, I'm going to stop because I know there's people who can tell the history a lot better than I can, but I am uh, so grateful that this event occurred and that things happened the way they did, which seemed so devastating at the time to not get the money, but it was the best thing that could have happened with AA. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Lynette. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Harlan this G. is Bella. Can I share? Larry. And yes. Harlan G., Bella, Larry, <coughs> and Tina. Kim J. Kim J. Irini. Irini. Okay. Harlan G., go right ahead. Good morning. Thank you. I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovery recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, can I be heard? Am I coming you through can, out there? You, okay. you, you are coming through, Harlan. Okay, good. Go ahead. Okay. The, in the spring of 1940, when they meet with John D. Rockefeller, Jr., when he gave the dinner, uh, 
which he wasn't at. He was ill. But the bottom line is, is that this was not the first time they had contacted Rockefeller. Let's take a look back very quickly in the three minutes that I have of how the tapestry and how the miracles came together. In the summer of 1937, before the first word of the book was written, they were meeting in Dr. Bob's living room in Akron, Ohio. Bill Wilson was there. Dr. Bob was there. And there were a couple, about 15 of them had a meeting that night. 18 of them had a meeting that night at the home of T. Clarence Henry. They discussed the book. They decided that they needed to raise money for the book, the missionaries, and the chain of hospitals. They told Bill to scram back to the Big Apple and get the money because everybody knew that New York was where the money is. Bill, the next day after arriving back in New York, goes up to Yonkers to see his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong. Leonard had married Bill's sister, Dorothy. Leonard says, and now listen to how weak this is. He says to Bill, I knew a girl from grammar school, and I think she had an uncle. Again, I knew a girl from grammar school. He's a doctor already. And I think she had an uncle that worked for Rockefeller. He rings up the Rockefeller Foundation and gets in touch with Willard Richardson. Willard Richardson was very close friends with Rockefeller. Rockefeller supported prohibition. Rockefeller was a very big supporter of a dry United States. Rockefeller arranges a meeting but refuses to financially support the endeavor. But he watched them very closely. In the spring of 1940, he gives a dinner, and Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob are given $5,000. After that, they're given $30 a week. Very small gift. When the book starts to sell, they stop the allowance. But let's take a look at Jack Alexander. Jack Alexander writes this article. He calls Bill Wilson Griffith. He calls Dr. Bob Dr. Armstrong. But Jack Alexander's role in life, his personality was that of an investigative reporter. His job was to find what was wrong, what was corrupt about an organization or an entity. He writes a compelling article about Alcoholics Anonymous after visiting Akron, after seeing some of the work they did in hospitals, after seeing this altruistic movement. And in his article, he paints such a compelling picture of the virtuous nature of Alcoholics Anonymous that the public is aroused to action and 8,000 people come in by the close of 1941. We lose this after time that Jack Alexander was an investigative reporter. His job, again, was to find what was wrong. So it's miracles, it's inches, it's personalities that were unlikely to be of help to us, and that's why we get to be here this morning. And every time we come to a meeting or every time we dial in, I have to think for just a second, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Harlan T. Bella, and your first initial. Good morning. Thank you, everybody. My name is Bella G., and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Rebecca, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. 
alcoholics in need of help. Yes, for me, this was the beginning of my miracle, of my uh, reborn, because till I came to the program, I didn't even realize that I need help. I didn't even realize that I can be helped. You know, I lived by myself, lonely and alone, uh, with jealousy and with fear, with resentment. And yes, I was blaming, blaming myself, blaming the society, and blaming also God, because God, you know, I grew up with God, but God for me was a punishing God. So I was blaming him that, you know, I want to lose weight, but God doesn't help me. God doesn't want me to lose weight. Everything is because God. And thank you, God. Thank you, God. As soon as I realized that, yes, I need help, and not because I am bad, not because I am stupid, not because I don't listen to others, not because I don't get advices. I need help because I am human, and I don't know everything, and I am not perfect. And, yes, I... People can teach me, and it doesn't mean nothing about me. We are the same. I just don't know everything, and I don't know all the time all the answers. And yes, sometimes I am doing, and I did, uh, the wrong choice. And thank you, God, as soon as I realize that I need help because I am human, and I am connected to a loving, accepting power, and yes, God is there for me all the time. I just have to open the door, and this was the beginning of the miracle, when it's nothing to do with me. I am human, and it's a fact I need help. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella G. Larry Kay. Oh, thanks so much. Can you hear me all right? I do hear you all right, Larry. Okay, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Larry Kay, Recovered Compulsive Reader from Chicago. You know, sometimes uh, more money in the wrong hands uh, can, can create more problems. And I think this was very divine, like was spoken already, with the Rockefeller dinner. You know, sometimes wrong mo- the wrong money, wrong motives, um, results in the wrong outcome. And, and this dinner certainly didn't come off as Bill had originally hoped. Keep in mind, Bill was an extraordinarily capable business mind. And look, he was looking for a major infusion of cash to expand AA. He had good intent. Um, he wanted to expand AA as an organization and as this creative business mind. He had all sorts of ideas, and other early pioneers had some ideas to take this thing to another level. There was notion of hospitals and all sorts of things. But thankfully, that was not to be. You know, perhaps, um, you know, some people had, sometimes I have plans and then God laughs at my plans. That's how I like to envision it. Um, At least that's not the way, um, you know, perhaps God had envisioned this to go. Um, So the Rockefeller dinner, there was about 60 uh, wealthy business leaders, philanthropists and attendants. I think they invited about just under 200 and only 60 responded, you know, that they would come. 
and it did not produce the major donations uh, hoped for. And, and after Bill, I've read about Bill speaking his words. There's you can read transcripts. Um, others that spoke. The outcome was that it was decided that huge donations would actually hinder, be detrimental to the growth in the strategic direction of AA. And far more important was the publicity that we received and the guidance that some of these business leaders could offer the group. And they did through what later became, you know, the, the general service office and so forth. And you know, I'm grateful for that because, you know, had there been a major infusion of cash, I know if I, when I was still stuck in my disease to an extent, I, I think money in my hands, I know where that would have gone. I was still self-centered to the extreme. And so I, I occasionally had cash in hand and, and usually it went, you know, for self-serving purposes. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so I wasn't capable of handling it. And I think, I think that there, there's something to be learned about that. Um, and I'm grateful for that because here we have an organization, we have a group, you know, today with all of us on the line here, and it's about leadership from the bottom. There's no gurus, there's no hierarchy here, there's no one, you know, more recovered than someone else, more deserving than someone else. This, this for me is not a recovered state based on, you know, justice or deserving it. It was based um, on grace, and and that's what I think is embedded in our organization. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry Kay. Tina. Thanks, Rebecca. Tina S. Compulsive Eater Anorexic in Florida. And I really appreciate all the history and uh, for the pioneers who brought this movement about so that today, you know, we can all benefit. And, you know, what I liked about this, I'm so grateful today that this wasn't about money because, you know, I know in my own personal life, when it's about money, things can go askew for sure. And so, you know, what it talks about here is from, from these people that were so well-known so that the message could be so well-delivered, um, many people, again, went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the text that explains the problem for us and the program of action, which is the solution. You know, and, and then it talks about just the, the mushrooming process was in full swing. You know, the, the spread developed, it developed rapidly, you know, through, through, the, um, through the nation. You know, and it says at the end, it says, AA had become a national institution, national, nationwide institution, a society for education. You know, so that today, you know, we can live one day at a time without participating in the disease, whatever that is, you know, and I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm also in Overeaters Anonymous, which has come about through Alcoholics Anonymous so that I can live today in freedom, which I never, ever could. And, and what a great thing. What, how so divinely inspired and come about, you know, and, um, I am so grateful and, and grateful to be on the line and that, again, you know, one day at a time, if I do the deal, I get it. So with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Tina S. Kim G. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey and a number geek. So as I look at these numbers, you know, in 1935, there were three recovered people. There was Bill, there was Bob, and there was Bill Dodson. And they said in 18 months, they have about 7 to 10 people. And then in 1939, they had the first 100. 
when this book is published, they get 800 frantic alcoholics. And now we're seeing this article comes out in 1940. And in March of 1941, they have 2,000 members. But by the end of 1931, they have 8,000 members. Look at that growth. That growth is because of their recovery. You know, I think of a vision for you. We started in July 2012 with about 40 people listening on the line. It soon blossomed to over 100, and now it's four years later. On Monday, I checked, and we had 348 people listening live on the line. And I haven't, no, I haven't asked recently, but on average a while ago, we were getting 2,000 hits a day on the website, and we have a member list of over 3,000 people. You know, often when I speak on the special edition, and I'm sure this is true for anyone who speaks in the special editions, I get calls from across the United States. You know, I've done the doctor's opinion with, with people from Australia. I currently have an email I haven't had a chance to return from a woman in Moscow. I mean, that's, we are so hungry for this recovery in our fellowship. And I just want to say, and I, I prayed about saying some stuff, but we have to be honest about where our fellowship is. You know, I often hear people complain about, oh, we hear the same voices on a vision for you all the time. Why is it always the same people? I have to tell you, my experience in face-to-face -face meetings is all I experience is people being in relapse and, going, and getting absent and relapse and going absent. I am so grateful that I've heard some of the four, the, the, over these four years, I've heard the same voices, that people are getting recovered and they're staying in recovery because of this big book message. You know, I often hear, you know, that we need to focus on the new person. The new person is the most important. I always spend a lot of money and time getting people to come to Overeaters Anonymous. I want to ask us, what are we doing to help people stay? What are we doing for the person who's been there for 20 years who keeps relapsing? We need to focus on that because the reality of our fellowship is that in 1990 we had 150,000 members and in 2014 we had 54,000 members. And this is my opinion again. But I think we're at a critical point now. We have to decide, is Overeaters Anonymous a nine-tool program or is Overeaters Anonymous a 12-step program? And that's going to determine our fate, in my opinion. So as I read this chapter, I'm going to finish with this. I often get weepy as I read the growth in Overeaters Anonymous in AA because of absolute gratitude. But at the same time, I get weepy for the sadness from my own fellowship that isn't grabbing onto this message and experiencing the same growth that AA did. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim G. Irini M. Thank you, Rebecca, for your service. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. My name is Irini M. from New York, and I'm a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. Always giving credit where credit is due. So, what news? News got out and everyone went to the bookstore to get the book. So this book, it's not just divinely written. It's not just a textbook. It really truly is a movement of transformation, transforming lives, communicating this message that's so attractive and it's like a magnet, a message that is literally divinely inspired, full of energy and it's a blessing and it's a gift, a gift of life to live in peace and harmony with God, ourselves, and others. Wow. Here's, it's a specific mindset that carried us from then to now, a message of growth. 
It's a connection of communicating the truth, words of honesty. It was true then, and it still holds true today. And it will continue to hold true for the future because why? The truth never changes. It remains the same, powerful and strong. A message that manifested the transformation of alcoholics, that they had changed in the way they thought, the way they acted, and the way they felt, that families and friends and others witnessed testimonies. And what powerful message are we hearing here? A message of freedom from bondage of self and despair. A message of families being reunited. A message of a way out. A message of recovery. A message of growth and attraction. A message of connection. And yes, a message of God does for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. So we're setting history that can never be ignored or forgotten, just as we today are continuing this history for those who will come after us. The chain of connection that can never be broken, but only strengthened to hold all of us up and support us in this strength. So we're part of this historical movement, this connection of what the truth is. And the truth, what? (laughs) Always sets us free. Thank you, God. We all have an important role, a responsibility, because we all have the same purpose that comes from the same problem and the same solution. We all have a compelling, inspiring story that is so empowering and strong, and it carries depth and weight and is so attractive, and for me, it's extremely yummy. I'm so grateful that this sweet, filling taste fills my soul. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Irini. Uh, Before I take more names, I just want to let anyone who got on the line a little bit late know that we're in the forward to second edition, the first full paragraph on page XVIII that begins in the spring of 1940. Is there anyone else who would like to share on this paragraph? Hi, Melissa. Melissa, Okay. Okay, hold on one sec. I heard I heard someone whose last initial is R. Nessa. Nessa R. Okay. Nessa Nessa R. Is there another person whose last initial is R? No. Okay, then I heard the name Melissa. And who else did I miss? Betty W. I Reva heard P. Betty W. and Reva P. And I know there Leanne was someone w. else. Leanne, Leanne w. w. Leanne W. Did I hear Leah M.? Correct. Okay. Did I hear another person? <laughs> Could you say it again? This is Raquel. Can you guess me? Is it Raquel? Yes. Raquel. Okay, did I miss anyone? Nessa R., Melissa, Betty, Reva, Liam, Leah, Raquel. Zen B. Uh, Roxanne or Roxanne? Zen B. Could you say? Roxanne? I said Zen. Z-E-N. Zen. Zen. Yes. B. Gotcha. Okay. 
Okay, Nessa, Nessa R. Hi, good morning, Vision for You. This is Nessa R, a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. You know, the first few times I read this book and I um, read the forewords, my, my reaction was like, why do I need to know all this history? Like, let's not waste any time. Uh, where are the meats and potatoes, you know, part of the pan of this program? I just need to know what I need to do so that I can solve my food problem. Um, and sometimes I still have the same reaction, I must admit. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, again, we gotta, we got to learn this. But there is, um, there is a lot of um, um, instructions, actually, in the history. And I can just think, uh, you know, for example, two lessons that I derived from all this history. You know, number one, you know, we have a lot of excuses why, you know, we don't have time for this program, why it's not going to work for us. You know, um, but these people have the same um, obstacles. They face the same obstacles and perhaps even worse than we did. You know, it's like, oh, I have financial problems. I got to focus on my, on my job. But you know what? They had financial problems too. You know, Bill and Lois were homeless for two years or something like that. Dr. Bob's practice had dwindled to almost nothing. Um, he was in arrears in his mortgage, was about to lose his house. Uh, we say, oh, you know, like I don't get along with my husband and my children this. And, you know, um, these people also had, uh, uh, had problems. You know, families had, had broken apart. And yet um, they found the time to uh, work the program and make it a priority so that they could recover. You know, we say, oh, well, there's no meetings in my area. I cannot find a good sponsor. You know, these people, again, they had no meetings. They had no sponsors. Um, they just had the book, and they came out the other side. You know, the other thing, too, is that even despite all those problems, the fact that they needed to find a, a form of livelihood, they devoted themselves to this program. They made it the number one priority. And I cannot speak for alcoholics, but I think that compulsive overeaters, by and large, are not in the same dire straits that these people found themselves into. And so if they had the time to carry the message and to work tirelessly day in and day out, 24-7, you know, how much more so can we do it? So those are two lessons. You know, there's no valid excuses um, for not working the program. And also there's no valid reasons um, for not dedicating ourselves to the best of our ability as much as time permits to carry the message. I mean, this is just the role model that these people who came before us um, represented. And this is why I, I find the history very um, important now and something to really, to really study and analyze, not for history's sake, but for the lessons um, that, that it contains uh, for us. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Nessa R. Melissa C. Hi, good morning. It's Melissa C., recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, you know, the words that grabbed me this morning was compelling. And, um, and how, you know, I, I picture for a moment what it would be like to be at a dinner with, you know, someone with, uh, with some fame and some money who was really going to um, listen what it is that this compulsive overeating problem, you know, is, um, instead of just another, um, you know, meeting of diet gurus trying to sell us something, um, you know, this was a, perhaps people came together to listen, and then, 
you know, an article gets written, um, and and there was something compelling about this, you know, that and what's compelling is that people were recovered, you know, people got recovered, and um, you know, and I think about how we could apply this um, to OA because I just don't see, you know, outside of people who know of OA who are you know are involved in the fellowship whether they have recovery or not. Um, outside of OA, I don't hear any real talk about it. It doesn't seem to get any um, any word. You know, nobody in, in my outside world um, understands that um, eating and compulsive overeating is an addiction, that there's such a thing called a food addiction. It seems like every article I've come across is about better exercise plans, better nutrition, moderation, moderation, moderation. That seems to be the constant message. And so, you know, when I when I reflect, what's my part? What can I do? Um, you know, I'm not a journalist. Um, I don't know how anonymity fits in um, publicizing, you know, about a food addiction. Um, so what is my part? My part is to live the message, you know. And if I live recovered and I live the message, um, then, you know, the other word that jumped out was deluge, you know, that, that we get flooded. And, um, and you know, thank you, God, I'm not going to, you know, be full of myself. But there is an attention that I've been getting. There's there's this attention that I get from people. People ask. They see the physical transformation, but there's something real that happens to me, you know, my personal transformation. And that's how we can draw people in is to live recovered. You know, that's really the key. Thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. Betty W. Good morning, um, and thank you for your service. Um, I was really um, impressed by this paragraph, and it reminds me of what we call today 12-stepping. And I was focusing on um, news of this got on the world wires. and that's really about, as the speaker before me said, carrying the message. And for me, this was so important. It was 1964, and I was walking to my car after a full day of work and so depressed that I couldn't get food out of my mind and that my life was really all about food, how much to eat or how much not to eat. And um, I passed by a closed store wind window which had a flyer in it um uh talking uh, a listing um different OA meetings in the area and there was one the following Saturday and I had never heard of Overeaters Anonymous and uh ironically this meeting was in a hospital so I did decide to go on Saturday and I walked into the meeting covering my face because um uh, I was so um, unhealthy at the time. I was so afraid of people um, finding me out that I would go to a meeting like this. And when I sat down and heard that I had a disease and that other people thought about food the way I was thinking, I was so relieved. And I'm so grateful. I really think it was a God thing that I walked by that store window and saw that flyer. And I'm so grateful to whoever printed that flyer and who took it and put it in different places where I, where I could see it and hopefully others could. But it was uh, many years later 
that I entered a vision for you and uh, heard about the connection between OA and the Big Book, and um, and now I I know that not only do I have a disease, but what are the symptoms of the disease? The obsessive mind and the allergy of the body, and I'm just so grateful that this meeting exists today, and um, and that I know the truth about my disease, and I know that I'm not morally uh, incompetent. I have a disease that needs to be treated every day. Um, by being abstinent and uh, following the guidelines of my program. And thank you again, and with that, I pass. Thank you, Betty W. Reva P. Good morning. This is Reva P., grateful, recovered, compulsive reader in Toronto. Two things strike me in this paragraph. First of all, uh, thank you so much for the people filling in on the history behind this. And what strikes me about that is um, how divinely inspired um, the evolution of this uh, program has been. And it reminds me that these people were recovered. They had worked through the steps as they were um, known at that time. And what happened when their plan for funding and missionaries and hospitals did not work out? Did they say, you know what, I think I'm just going to forget about this whole thing. You know what, if I can't get my way, then I'm not doing it. You know, I'm taking my toys and going home kind of thing. No, they just went with how things evolved. And in recovery, I can have great ideas and great plans and great designs, but as long as I stick close to the steps and get access to my higher power, I can be open to other ways. And God is bigger than all of me and us. And he has a divine plan. And I need to listen and go with it. And that's what they did. And it worked out better, way better than they could have ever imagined originally. And the second thing that struck me was how compelling the picture was. And what did they do? Did they have a great marketer, Salesforce PR agent and have a great plan that they, you know, toiled over hours and hours. All they did was tell their stories. And what was the story? The story was the miraculous news that they had recovered. They were bottom, low-level drunks who just couldn't get it together, who were smart people, educated. And this method and these steps transformed their lives and their personalities. That was the great news, and that is a compelling picture. So what do I do to spread the message? I think sometimes the best thing we can do is to be recovered. That is the great news, and people notice, and people see it, and then the word spreads like wildfire, just like this meeting's history has um, mushroomed. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Reva P. Leanne W. Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes, Leanne. Okay, thank you. Um, I really wanted to share on this because what what it reminded me of is a couple of weeks ago, I was walking through Boston. I work in Boston, and I was as I was walking to my office, 
I saw a, a person holding a sign, and the sign said, desperate, anything would help. And as I looked at the sign, I'm not taking this person's inventory or anything, but I looked at the sign, and I thought for a minute, and I said, isn't that how I was going into typical OA meetings or going, you know, just walking around? I, I walk, you know, I would walk around with weight on my body and with this feeling of desperation as if I was holding a sign saying, desperate, anything would help. And if you would just give to me, then I would be better. So, it was, for example, I would go to typical OA meetings, and I would hope to find a sponsor, and somehow that sponsor would miraculously make me abstinent and thin. And at that time, never really hearing the message of that there's a lot of work that I, can, that I need to do, that there are steps that I need to follow, and then there are things that I need to do on a daily basis in order to keep my my serenity and to keep myself spiritually fit and so that these are things that I need to do so I can no longer hold this sign saying desperate everything anything will help I need to I need to get out there and actually work the steps and I as we were reading through what Bill was saying and how um, he had gone to the Rockefellers it, it was this if somebody would give me something that would make everything work out that would be great but the bottom line is if I if I want to have this life that's promised to me, I need to do the work, and there's nothing that anybody's going to give me that is going to, aside from guidance, so they would give me guidance, but there's nothing tangible that they're going to give me that is going to get me to the promises into living this life of peace and serenity. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne W. Leah M. Thanks so much. Rebecca, it's wonderful to review the history this morning. Um, I'm looking at that statement, AA members to tell their stories. You know, at this dinner that, of course, John D. Rockefeller wasn't able to attend because he was ill, but his son was there. And, you know, he spoke about that he could see that the work of AA is one of goodwill that the power that lies behind this movement is the fact that one member carries the good message to the next without any thought of financial income or reward. And that continued this altruistic movement. You know, we have been recovered and have been given the power to help others. You know, we hear that a lot, and that's exactly what was happening. This wasn't a question of alcoholics giving those who had recovered anything. Their stability was coming out of trying to give, not out of demanding to receive anything, not out of demanding to receive financial income or the reward. The beauty of it was in the giving. You know, the the big book talks about it. Um, you know, it, it, when it states, but the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who's properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the conf- entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours until such an understanding is reached. Little or nothing can be accomplished. This is our work, and it's something we gladly give because there's no satisfaction that's deeper and no joy greater than seeing someone being released 
from the chains, from the bondage of compulsive overeating. At least that's been my experience. So, you know, when we have done the work and when we have recovered, then we have the responsibility and the obligation and the duty, and yes, it is an, it's an absolute pleasure to be the one who carries the message, to be the person now who gives, not takes, but who gives and, of course, benefits from that process, um, but to be the one who passes it on. And this whole premise of AA members telling their stories, whether it was at the dinner, whether it's in face-to-face meetings, whether it's in the, in the book, in the back, um, it made the AA Big Book compelling, and they were deluged, they were flooded, and although the Big Book's never been on the bestseller list, yet the Big Book and the AA's uh, members that are have told their stories, this book has become, it's designated by the Library of Congress as one of the 88 books that shaped America, and it's included in the library's, uh, ex, you know, um, exhibition on the premises that it has shaped America and it continues to do so today throughout the world in over 70 languages I believe in over 180 countries and isn't it a privilege and an honor and a duty to continue to carry that message today and with that I pass thank you Leah M Raquel Can you hear me? I hear you, Raquel. And your first interview. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, boy. I wish I could be as coherent as as any one of you, and and the last one especially, not to single anybody out. I'm just calling because I really want to be part of this celebration. Reading the history, for me, is a celebration. For me, reading the Lasker Awards, that says at the end of the book that this wonderful thing, in 1961 they received already this award, but this wonderful, wonderful innovation that is called AA would have, could have here that a new therapy based on the kinship of common suffering, one having vast, one having vast potential for the mild other ills of mankind. My goodness. A, a, an article came out here not long ago uh, about somebody who said that what we have in the 12 traditions and the 12 steps is the minimum skeleton that a society needs in order to exist. And everybody in, in a way fills it out with his own group, with his belonging, ethnic belonging, with, with the faith of a certain kind of, of leadership. And, and culture, but the skeleton of what it means to be a healthy society, here it is. And then I go, and, and, and I'm so excited about this, that AA exists, and I'll never be, have enough words to thank Bill W. and Dr. Bob, and the man on the bed, and all the first hundred who wrote it, like Dr. Silford says, in a masterful way. But then I take out the article addressed an address of 2002 by our dear Roseanne at the World Service Business Conference in 2002, May 11. All of you can look it up because it's an incredible speech where she was pouring her heart out that we don't make changes 
we're going to find ourselves standing in front of the cold light of the refrigerator at 2 o'clock in the morning because we are dwindling and that our message is not coming across because we don't have enough to show for it. And what is the special thing that she went through? Paragraph by paragraph, she went through um, from 1962, from the first conference, with a bundle of straws in her hand, pulling a straw out every time, showing how all the changes and the groups that split off, that endangered the game, the unity, the first tradition, unity. Every one of these splinters, you can break, a child can break them. But when we're together, who can? When we are together, that's the only thing. So here, I'm holding up a bundle, I'm reading to you from her speech. I'm holding up a bundle of sticks wrapped together. As you can see, this bundle is difficult, if not impossible, to break. Now, hold on. I, I'm, I'm skipping okay. to 1973. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up. 1973, 1977, 1987, how all these groups have split off. But now that we have our precious, precious, vision for you, maybe it's a new beginning to hear this wonderful holy thing and be able to carry a message that has the depth and weight. And I love you all and have a wonderful day and a wonderful recovery. And I, I pass. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Raquel. Zen, you will be our last person to share this first hour. Hi, my name is I'm a recovered compulsive overeater for today from London in the UK. I'd like to say that I'm very grateful for the expression, the mushrooming process, because it reminds me of the mushrooming process of my recovery. And I remember that the first step of this process was for me to understand that there is a power greater than myself and and that I am not God. Then other steps were to let go of useless beliefs, which were that food or lose weight or isolation are the solutions. Then in my recovery, I had to accept that the way people think of me is none of my business. This helps my recovery. This helped me become more resilient I was able to go to my office even if, even if I had eaten because what people think about me wasn't the key to my, to my life, to my happiness. Another step was then that I had to convert any negative thought into a positive one. No negative thought could go unseen because definitely it would take me back to the disease. Then I had to pray for rigorous honesty to look at my patterns. And I pray and I pray. And I start to realize that my relapses occurred more and more often when I was around my son. So I had to set up boundaries. And it was difficult. But as I did all these steps, my recovery mushrooms more and more. Today I'm at the stage where I look at my inner child abandonment issues. And to conclude, I love this mushrooming mushrooming process expression because it gives me hope. I know that my higher power has more imagination than me, 
And all I have to do is to follow these steps and my recovery will get better and better every day because my higher power only wants the best for me with that I pass. Thank you, Zen. Thank you, everyone. Please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Nancy R. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only to the end of the page. Uh, thank you. My name is Nancy. I'm a compulsive, a recover compulsive overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your fault to him and to your fellows. Clear away the records of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.